Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Do you know that God loves you? This is the sort of question to which most will quickly nod their heads. It seems like an elementary doctrine of theology. Yes, God loves me. But do you really believe that God loves you? Now, I don't have supernatural insight uh, with which I can look inside your heart and know where you really stand on this. But, you know, Malachi did. He's a prophet. And in the opening section, Malachi expresses a thought that was in his audience's heart that they may even have been too afraid to admit. Malachi knows this and calls them out by saying, You say, how have you loved us? This is certainly a rhetorical device Malachi uses since he recognizes that their actions do not align with what at least should have been an orthodox statement that God does love them. As we will see, Malachi begins by addressing the priests, and it seems very unlikely to me that the statement, how have you loved us, would actually have been on their lips. But it was, though it wasn't on their lips, it was on their lives. By their actions, Malachi can tell that his audience doesn't really believe that God loved them. Recall from the earlier episodes about the frustrating conditions that existed among the small Jewish remnant living back in the land in the 5th century BC in the region of Yehud. These were hard times when crops weren't growing, when resources were scarce, when the Persians held political dominance, and to make matters worse, they had thought that a return from exile would have meant the glorious messianic age would have dawned. Bierhoff explains that this was, quote, a point in Israel's history, uh, a longer or shorter time after the exhilarating experiences of the return from the exile and the rebuilding of the temple. It was a time of low ebb, when it wearied priests and people to bring their sacrifices, when they deemed it irrelevant to do good or evil in the eyes of the Lord and futile to serve him, end quote. So circumstances were discouraging. And the people's actions indicated that whether they would own up to it or not, they didn't really believe that God loved them. You know, maybe you also, if you're going to be honest, are not entirely sure that God really does love you. Sure, you know it enough to mark the correct answer on a theology quiz. But to be honest, you are disappointed with the way God has treated you. And the hardships of life make you wonder if God really does care. Now, if that's you, I hope your interest is kind of piqued by uh, this passage that's in front of us, which is Malachi 1, 2 to 5. Or maybe your question is a little more theological than that when it comes to the assurance of God's love. From our last episode, we came to see some difficulties in the doctrine of the love of God. As Malachi uses it, the emphasis is on salvation and election within the covenant. And in that sense, God loves only some and hates others. With that in mind, the question of assurance becomes more important. Since we cannot give a blanket answer to every listener that, yes, God loves you in that you are a part of his covenant people. How do I know that everybody listening is a part of God's chosen people? So with that in mind, it becomes even more important to ask, how do I know that God loves me in this salvific way? Now, there's so much to say on this topic, but Malachi 1, 2-5 offers us a fascinating piece of the puzzle. Listen carefully to how Malachi assures the people of Yehud that Yahweh really does love them as I read our text, starting in verse 2. I loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? 
Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I love Jacob, but Esau I hated, and set his mountains for destruction, and his property to jackals of the wilderness. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will turn, we will build the ruins. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, They may build, but I will break down, and they will call them the territory of wickedness, and the people whom Yahweh cursed forever. And your eyes will see it, and you will say, Yahweh is magnified beyond the territory of Israel. So, how does Malachi argue that God really does love Israel here? Well, it's not in the way that most of us would have expected. Uh, Of all the things that Malachi could have pointed out as indications of God's love, what he decides to do is decide to camp out on how God hates, that is, decreed the destruction of Edom. That's how he's going to prove that God loves Israel. Now, it's not the sort of tactic that I would have thought to have taken, but Malachi's bold move here says several important things. First, it addresses the issue of complacency that we just considered. There are two options, love and hate. And while not everything was going according to their plan, God clearly didn't hate them. I like the way Mignon Jacobs explains it in her commentary. A quote, It is as though they were being told, You think that I hate you? But let me show you what hate looks like. End quote. It's important to note that God's hatred of Edom means that they have passed a kind of uh, point of no return. 1.4 states, If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will turn, or we will again rebuild the ruins, Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will break down, and they will call them the territory of wickedness and the people whom Yahweh cursed forever. So in that second clause, we will turn and build the ruins. Uh, Many translations have, we will again build the ruins, which is allowable in the Hebrew, or they omit the word again or turn completely. But several commentators have rightly pointed out that this misses an important use of the Hebrew word shuv, which is turn or or return, which is often used in prophetic literature to mean repentance. God's call to Israel earlier is for the people to repent, that is, to turn and to come back to the land and to build it. Edom has lost that chance. They can't turn. They are cursed forever. They have passed the point of no return and their destruction is certain. Now, as we read on in Malachi, it will become increasingly clear that God is not happy with Israel and that destruction actually awaits a lot of them too. But there's a difference. They have a Malachi who warns them of this danger before it's too late. They are Esau's brother. They're in close proximity to them. Israel's got her own sin to deal with. But their status as God's chosen people means that God still sends prophets to them. God's still calling them back to himself. So the first way the destruction of Edom assures Israel of God's love is by showing them that they are in a preferred position since there's still time to repent. The beauty of this is that it shows Israel that God still does love them and yet also contains an implicit call to repentance and not complacency. So Malachi isn't saying, yes, God loves you. You've got nothing to worry about. No, God loves them, but that means that they need to pay very careful attention. There's still time for repentance. So, first, Malachi brings up the destruction of Edom to assure Israel of his love for her because it indicates that God will take care of her enemies. One of the reasons that it seems so strange for us that Malachi goes in the direction he does 
may be because we've come to see salvation and judgment as opposites. God either saves or judges. Uh, Many of us have been trained to think that God is either loving or angry, but this just doesn't fit with the biblical categories. Instead, there's a consistent motif throughout Scripture of God saving his people by destroying her enemies. When the Midianites, for example, oppress Israel and God brings salvation through Gideon, well, it's by destroying the Midianites. Or when the Philistines bring Israel into bondage, God saves Israel by using the warrior Samson. Judgment and vengeance are a corollary to peace and blessing. From this perspective, Edom functions like a a synecdoche, uh, which is a figure of speech in which part of something stands for the whole. Edom's destruction speaks of the destruction of all of Israel's enemies, which of course is a prerequisite for the blessings to come on Israel. It may be helpful here to observe an allusion which Malachi makes. Uh, Jonathan Gibson argues in his monograph, Covenant Continuity and Fidelity, uh, that there are several parallels in this section to Ezekiel 35. To get a feel for it, I'll read the first several verses, and I'm sure you'll notice the echoes, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your cities shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, this allusion does a couple different things. First, it reminds the audience that the destruction of Edom wasn't arbitrary. It it was foretold by God, and he has brought it to pass. God's plan, though it must have seemed to be progressing slowly, was coming to pass. And so here's the second point. It situates Israel back within that prophetic scheme. After all, do you know what happens after Ezekiel 35? Why, Ezekiel 36. This is one of the key passages on the restoration of Israel, one of the central texts of the new covenant in which God sprinkles clean water and gives the people new heart and puts his spirit within them so that way they dwell in the land. In other words, Malachi 1, 2-5 assures Israel of God's love. By pointing out that God hasn't forgotten about punishment, his destruction of Edom reminds them that one day all of her oppressors will be dealt with. And that is not simply just giving them their just desserts. It is God preparing for the safety and blessing of his people. We might wonder, well, what's taking God so long? Now that question gets further treatment in Malachi, but we've already seen snippets of the answer. It is because God is allowing Israel time to repent because he doesn't want to have to treat her like her enemies. So, while our modern context has a whole host of differences from Malachi's, there are still important lessons for us to learn about the assurance of God's love. If God is still sending messengers to you, know that he hasn't given up on you yet. If you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin, 
Instead of getting angry, you should realize that this comes from God's love. Second, if you are thinking about the destruction of the wicked, realize that this is more than them getting what they deserve. It is about God clearing the path of salvation because God saves his people by destroying their enemies. When fears arise about condemnation, it will do no good to think, oh, there's no need to fear because God is a God of love. Remember, judgment is real. We can have assurance of salvation, not because God is bluffing when it comes to judgment, but because he has promised safety in Christ. That's the new covenant that we enter into. God's plan will certainly come to pass, a plan that culminates, as we just read, in the new covenant, the only place of safety where our sins and iniquities are remembered no more. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.